0: You're listening to Crunch, a podcast by award-winning New Zealand PR agency, HMC. Crunch stands for Crucial Chats Over Lunch. These are bite-sized discussions for business leaders that can easily be digested over your lunch hour, your morning commute, or whenever you listen to your favorite podcast. Crunch tackles a variety of topics to help business leaders build their knowledge in strategic communication and public relations. I'm your host, Mark Hunter, and it's my privilege to welcome you into Crunch. Crunch. Well, welcome to another episode of Crunch. Today, we have a particularly fascinating topic. We are talking about crisis or crises. Uh, More specifically, we're talking about um, the essential communication skills that leaders need to guide their staff, their customers, the community successfully through troubled waters. Joining me today as a guest on Crunch is one of New Zealand's leading experts on crisis management or crisis communication, Julian Lays, who is the Director of Pendulum Strategies. Now, Julian has had 23 years of communication experience working in the private and public sectors. Most notably, he has been a political advisor and communications uh, specialist with the first MMP government, which is fascinating. So he is a specialist in crisis and issues management. Julian, welcome. Thank you, Mark. Also helping us today in crisis management is Heather Claycomb. Heather is the managing director of HMC and also from HMC is senior account manager, Kate Weber. Ladies, welcome.
1: Hi. Hi, mate.
0: All right. Let's get into this. My first question is, what constitutes a crisis versus I am having a bad day, so I'm having a bad day, I'm in the midst of a crisis. How do you define those two?
2: So... The thing that defines a crisis really is something that, once it happens, the business, the organisation, or the individual—because it expands all those things—cannot do anything else. Your entire focus has to be on settling whatever this this issue is. It becomes all encompassing. It's overwhelming. It's like a bushfire. It's crazy. It's out of control versus an issue, which is something which normally you are aware of. It's bubbling along, and so most issues become crises if they're not managed well or if they take some sort of unexpected tangent. But the difference with a crisis is you can't manage it in the moment. All you can do is mitigate and try and maintain, protect, preserve reputation because also this is the other thing that I'm sure we'll cover today the heart and the most precious thing in, in every organization or individual is reputation. You know, so a crisis is the one thing that can completely ruin or scupper that for any entity.
1: Yeah. When I was thinking like, how do I define a crisis? Cause I never really thought about it. Actually, it's probably the first thing that you were really talking about there. Julian is urgency. We need to solve this today. We have no option and also impact, you know, so you could have a, something that you need to do right away, but, No matter what happens, it's not really going to impact your organization, whether it's reputation, the environment, lives might be lost if I don't urgently fix this right now.
0: That's for me the two things that came to mind, urgency and and impact. Why don't we add a little bit of meat to the bones? Uh, We've got a nice working definition, but why don't we talk about some of the crises that you've been involved in, all three of you, and that went well, where the leadership did well. The comms were good, the way they managed everything Basically, that's going to give some of the clues as to the listeners as to what to do. I think one of the things that
2: comes out in all crises that are managed well, and also we should think that a crisis is also always an opportunity as well. So a crisis can always actually have a silver lining or be turned around again if it's managed well. But the things that do define those crises where they have successful outcomes are where you've got leadership that is transparent, is prepared to front up and do so very quickly because speed is the absolute essence in terms of, again, being able to manage a crisis successfully. I think of someone like Ashley Bloomfield, mm. who became Director General of the Ministry of Health months before we had our biggest crisis globally in recent times, COVID, who never would have ever imagined in his wildest dreams that he would have been doing 1pm stand-ups almost daily and involved in the media for months? So he was someone that went from what you know what I call good to great as a spokesperson or a or a leader managing a big crisis. He epitomised um, authenticity. So you know here you've got a huge crisis where people are searching for a source of truth searching for trust and confidence. And he was able to deliver all of those things. And he became a very effective spokesperson, as we all know, didn't start out that way. And he had a huge deal of anxiety going from someone who wasn't prepared or was expecting to be front-facing to then dealing with one of the most complex crises in in modern times. So again, authenticity, the speed, being prepared, those are all hallmarks in, in terms of that particular one, but also all the crises I think I've been involved in.
1: One that comes to mind for me, and and today just like we probably won't be mentioning a lot of client names just to you know maintain confidentiality, but one that, that comes to mind for me that went really well um, that our team was involved in was a company that had a food for cattle, basically. And this food got out into the food chain and all of a sudden they, they realized, oh my gosh, this, this is a food that we recalled seasons ago we thought it was all off of our shelves. Nobody should have ever sold it. And actually, if it's fed to cattle, it could kill them. So <laughs> it was like, oh, quickly, we need to get the word out to farmers. And so the great thing about that company is they very quickly thought, we need to get the word out. We need to talk about this. And it was to the point that there was even one media story about it where the the journalist actually said, boy, it's really great to see that the company's doing the right thing and talking about this. And so as a PR person, that's mm-hmm. like the well, ultimate yeah. Stamp
3: when the, when the journalist is really happy to see how the company's handling it. So I think okay. that highlights too Heather, that you know they were putting the health and well being of the cattle and mm. their farmer customers first. Often that's a hard balance between the reputation of the company and doing the right thing. Yeah, and I think we you know we worked with another company, multinational company last year on a product recall, also in the agricultural sector. And I think when you're dealing with um, animals or people. The stakes are a lot higher, you know, animal health or, or human health. Uh, in this case, it had the potential to affect both. Mm. They had um, legal issues to balance, reputational issues to balance, relationships with a third party manufacturer to balance, uh, insurance to consider. But at the end of the day, I think what stood this company in good stead was that they were willing to step up and do the right thing and keep people informed Mm. because when you get that void of information, you know, and especially in the age of social media, I think we'll touch on this a little bit later, things can get out of control pretty quickly.
0: Mm. Mm. There are several complexities that you've mentioned at the start. Speed, Julian, is imperative and transparency, but there are layers, right? There are the internal comms that you've got to do with your own people, your own staff. You've Mm. got the customers. You've mentioned the farmers in this case. There's the public that also hear about it. So how do you, one, get the speed right? Who needs to hear first? And maybe there's no one size fits all. That's one issue. Another one is how much transparency is good transparency? And can you get away with multiple levels of transparency? What you tell your staff might be a bit more open and full versus what you're going to be telling. Do you know what I mean? Like there's layers Mm. of this thing. Mm. Mm. Julian, can you speak to that?
2: Yeah, so the speed side of things is, is, and Kate mentioned that sort of vacuum that you can't allow to happen because other people then just fill that void with their version of the story, which is often not the correct one, and it goes from there. But in terms of preparedness, many uh, companies will have, particularly those companies that, that act in critical areas like infrastructure, transport, I'm thinking Balkan Airport, mm. where they need to act very, very quickly, quicker than most, mm. they'll have a, a template Prepared. So, if in the event of an incident, depending, and they have a way of categorising what those incidents are, they can quickly fill in the blanks, basically, and get that message out. Uh, so, again, it's about providing people with the information quickly. So, there are means to actually do that. You know, and I think back to the day, and I can say with Shell um, in the day, uh, big petroleum company, of course, who again had volumes of crisis manuals uh, prepared probably hadn't tested them in a while, and this is probably over 20 years ago, but there was an incident on a forecourt involving a fatality. It took probably four to five hours for a decision to be made as to what to say, who to say it to, and by that stage, of course, you know, people are all over it, particularly the media. Mm. So, again, you you don't have time to sort of anymore because we're living in a cycle of uh, 24-7 media-wise, you need to go and you need to go quickly to, to let people know what's happening and to take responsibility for that process too. I think that's answered one bit of your question yeah. in terms <laughs> of transparency.
1: Can I just add to the um, urgency before we move on about that? I think social media has really changed how we need to respond so so quickly because you know, you'll often find, particularly if it's a very public thing, your crisis will break on the media, on the social media first, you know, before anything else. So your public already knows what's happened <laughs> before you even say anything. So I remember watching a, a webinar. This is about, it was about two years ago now um, with a crisis expert. And they were saying that the, the like best practice was 10 minutes after something happens, you should be out in the media saying something, which is really hard because you might not know a lot. <laughs> but you may you might just need to say, here's what we know now. We're going to come back to you um, shortly, but kind of acknowledge it, that it's happened. So I think that's social media.
2: It's that actual golden hour. It's, mm. it's that first hour, uh, which means you've got to get social. You also have to get your traditional media release. So you have an hour to actually get that out. Mm. Um, after that, you start to lose the uh, balance and you start to get then being catch-up mode essentially. Mm. So Lose control.
3: It, mm. Absolutely. Mm. I was thinking, you know, that that speed of response that we have to have now because everything's digital mm. makes it challenging to communicate internally with your staff. You know, we always talk about prioritising, keeping your staff up to date and informed first, which is slightly easier to do if you've got an issue. But as soon as a crisis happens, it's still important. Mm. But balancing that with what you're saying publicly and and keeping your team informed at the Mm. same time. Those of us
1: who are old enough to remember, you know, before social media, um, you know, you could call a meeting, talk to the staff after you've put together the key messages Da da da. later today, we'll be going out to media. You know, you just do not have that time anymore. And unfortunately, even though it's not the right, you know, you don't want to see it happen is staff will sometimes depending on the scale of the crisis, they will see it in the news first, you know, but um, mm. yeah, so it's really tough.
0: That presupposes that you've got a plan of some sort. And you did allude to this, Julian. So you're an expert. This is what you do. Mm. Do you advise that your average company should have some plan of some sort? And and how do you even begin getting a plan going? Given that we most most companies don't experience crises, mm. and most don't think that they will. It's a bit like insurance, you know, where people
2: think, mm. oh, you know, should I take this out? Should I be prepared? But when it actually happens, you're you're very glad when you have got something to you know to fall back on. There have been surveys, research that has been done, I think even quite recently, but on average, about 60% of most organisations will have some form of plan, some form of, hey, what what actually happens when the preferable hits the fan? What do we do? And, and the more complex the organisation is in terms of size, if it's listed, the more detailed that their plan is. But unfortunately, most of those plans don't always get tested. Mm. Yeah. And so it's only, uh, which I alluded to earlier, it's only in the testing where you actually see what are the things that actually work when we have a, a sort of delegated tree of who does what, you know, who says what when the, when the phone goes. Only if you test that can you actually be sure that, that things actually are going to work.
0: How do you test it? It's not. It doesn't sound like it's a fire drill where we can run through it, we evacuate, we all <laughs> but, know it's just... But you know, we do, man kind of it. You run a
3: scenario. Oh, you do? You do. You, yep, yeah. you run the scenario. Okay. And I was just thinking, Julie, in terms of testing, if you think about staff turnover and, you know, you do have to keep refreshing it because you're not going to have the same staff for
0: three,
3: yes. five mm. years. Mm.
2: Absolutely. Mm. But um, it can take half a day, usually half a day is a minimum. It's expensive. And so this is the reason why a lot of, companies, CEOs go, oh, you know, why should I, why should we invest in that? But the ones that do, it makes an incredible difference. You know, and I can, again, think of sort of best in class companies that do do it regularly. You know, one I can think of in the transport space does one at a level involving some staff at a six, every six months. One at 12 months involving all staff. Their staff also have even things like bags under the desk that have everything in there. So if, they are involved in a major incident. They've thought ahead about, we know that people are, could be here potentially for a long time. Have they got a change of clothes? Have they got you know the essentials that they might need if they can't leave their desk? And then, yeah, all of that stuff is part of the planning.
0: I did raise the question before about um, transparency and we'll, we'll bring this in and bundle it in with things that leaders do right and do wrong. And I would imagine that transparency is one of those tricky little spaces. So. What's a rule of thumb for how much transparency is good or good enough?
2: Always be sort of honest. I mean, um, ideally, that's the base rule and and never lie. The degrees that you referred to, Mark, are ones where particularly if you are a listed company and you've got um, requirements under the listing rules with the NZX, the stock exchange, those requirements also compel those companies that where they've got to make announcements if things are deemed material, and sometimes a major crisis can be material because a material is you know ten percent of the capital value of the company. But equally, you know, organisations have competing interests even within the organisation. So a legal counsel might say, "Well, look, I know you'd like to go out and, and and say all of this and and really connect and and tell it as it is." but let's be careful because there are sort of issues around sort of liability. Also, we can only say what we know. Mm. And this is the other thing with the crisis. Some people will hold back thinking, well, you know, we can't comment because we don't know anything. You can still comment and you need to sort of front up and at least to show that you are in the process of finding out that information and communicating that better than saying no comment. We won't front until we've got everything sorted mm. again people need answers quickly and 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 they are prepared to accept as little information as you've got as long as they know that you're in the process
0: of managing it mm. okay yeah and Kate, you both mentioned recent uh, examples with clients agricultural mm. clients with the uh, tricky little situations or mm. big situations transparency how much
1: yeah we're in the middle of one right now actually um And again, it's kind it's sort of in that, um, primary sector and a company who, um, has a food, again, it's a food for animals. And the other day we were putting some columns together and and it's at the very, very start of this crisis. Um, they're going to, they're doing a product recall and they said, they wanted to say no animals have ingested this, uh, food and, and been harmed. Well, it's only like day two, you know, what happens if we put that in writing and we say it really confidently, and then in a couple of days' time, we start to get people complaining about their animals being hurt or dying. You know? So you've know, you kind of boxed yeah. yourself into a corner. So I think you, know, you want to be that open and honest, but you also need to be really careful with what you say because you know this crisis is going to evolve. You know, crises evolve hourly, daily. And you want to be sure that your messages build on one another. And you, you often will say something that that turns out to be different, you know, a couple of days time, and that's okay. You need to apologize and just talk about it. But um, yeah, I think you just need to be careful with your words to not box yourself into a, a corner you can't get out of. Is that that's how I kind of described it to the client the other day?
3: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think probably that highlights one thing I had experience with last year with a client was we had a key message in our holding statement that said that. Um, the meat that was being consumed is not harmful to humans. Whereas this is an animal health company. So they actually not qualified right. to comment on what is harmful or not to humans. So these were all the discussions that, that we would have on our daily calls. And so, you yeah, know, nuances like that, that you just have to be really careful about. Mm.
2: Look, and speaking of the uh, nuances and transparency, so often the decision that's made at a sort of board and a manager and operational level is weighing up what the, what the risk is. What's the risk of not doing acting on this quickly and going out publicly versus doing so? And often it's it comes down to commercial matters. People look at hey, how much is this going to cost us? Because often a crisis can cost dearly. Um, you think of GlaxoSmithKline like, so with Ribena, mm. which I think we've spoken about. Previously, but you know, so again, a company that, in a classic example where an issue sat there for <clears throat> months and months and months. A couple of schoolgirls had, had done a science project, looked at the level of vitamin C and Ribena, found out that what was on the label didn't match their test, wrote into the company saying, what up, Um, hadn't heard anything for months and months and months. Oh, my gosh. Until they went to the media. And then then the media got onto it. And then that issue became a crisis, which
0: went on to cost that company $20 million.
1: That's amazing. Yeah.
0: Wow. So there's the timing issue. There's a transparency issue. What are the other common mistakes that um, leaders are likely to fall into? Crisis happens. They haven't planned for it. And now it's there. They must do things. What are the mistakes they typically make? Well,
2: the worst one is just um, hoping it'll go away. Mm. Let's bury our head in the sand. And they do. They do. I can think of another example where a technology company had a particular product. They became aware that this new product had, there was an issue with it. They wanted to go out and replace the product from their customers, do so on a sort of rolling basis, but without actually informing them to alarm them. And all the sort of downstream effects that that might cause in terms of losing business, impact on share price. So hey, let's just do this under the radar. Let's not actually let's tell them. Look, we're just doing this as a as a matter of course. It's it's no big deal. Now I can't say too much about what what the risk was with that particular product, mm-hmm. but it was significant enough where it could have had an impact on on life. Okay. But you know this particular company made the decision to try and just deal with it before making it public, and they and they got away with it. Oh, mm-hmm.
3: they
0: did?
2: Yeah. Okay.
3: Mm-hmm. And oh, that, that's a balancing act, and I think that, you know, we give advice to our clients mm. in those situations, like when when do you proactively, yes. and, and this would be obviously when you're managing an issue before it becomes a crisis, when do you proactively mm. put out a media statement or communicate, and, and when do you not? Mm. When do you have a, you know, you prep the comms and, and hold it yes. until you need it?
2: And when Mm. you give advice and sometimes have to walk away, like the example I just mentioned, I mean, sometimes clients, even in the face of a crisis, won't necessarily accept best practice. And, again, sometimes you you can advise people, but they
0: won't necessarily Mm. do the right thing.
1: It's a tricky thing, isn't
0: it, because if my plumbing explodes in my house, whatever the advice the plumber gives, I am taking it, right? I'm not going, I mean, thank you, but I'm going to try something. (laughs) There was just this thing with the specialist area of crisis management. Everyone feels they've got a little bit of knowledge themselves. It's like people who are gifted. Well, you you were in the business of PR and you write things and everybody can write something. But that must be difficult when you know, you're given advice. It's from years and years of seeing good and bad situations and dealt with properly and not. And they don't take it. Mm. But I guess mm. you can't make them do things, huh?
2: No, no. And sometimes, too, companies will, clients will bring you in sort of once a crisis is already underway. Yeah. And I'm sure we've all been through this yeah. where, you know, it's frustrating because, you know, immediately if you've been brought in earlier and had time to work and, you know, have a plan and to do everything in the considered way that particular issue that's now a crisis could have been contained. But once again, it's, yeah. once it's in that crisis phase, you, you really are just, you're, you're just holding on and you're trying to mitigate ensuring mm. that there's going to be some reputation left at the end of it versus not allowing the crisis to happen at all.
1: Mm. I guess, it, like, yeah, it's funny. I was talking to someone else about the same, exact same uh, question you've just brought up, Mark, um, just yesterday. But, you know, I think with communication, it's not an exact science. Like, if you want to stop your pipe from leaking, you're, Know exactly what to do, you know. Mm. But there are different ways you can handle a crisis, and both sets of options might come out okay. So I guess that's why there's a million of us working in, in comms, and you can take advice advice from different people. But you know, it, it is uh, it's difficult as a comms person when you you know you're 99 sure this is exactly what you need to do, and your client doesn't take your advice. Julian um, and I just worked on one. You know, it was a company that had. Um, one of their board of directors actually committed a crime. There was name suppression. My advice was, let's when this finally comes out, let's let's front this and talk about it publicly. And the organization decided not to do that. <laughs> and um, yeah, there was a little bit of a backlash, but at the end of the day, they've ri- ridden through it, and it's been okay. so All right.
0: mm. hey, since today's topic is not just crises and how to deal with them, but crises and leadership, should leaders always be the face of a crisis? It's going to happen mm. if you're the leader. Is it mandatory? You must be. No, it's not. And again, I think of Alton <laughs> council, you know, if you think
2: of how, and actually, look, it's a good example of how poorly a crisis was handled. So again, the January 27 floods where the person that should have been front and foremost dealing with that issue wasn't around, in fact, didn't sort of make comment. I don't think Mayor Brown made any comment until 11 p.m., that evening, um, But as as we know, as the crisis um, went on, because it did go on for several weeks, the person that came to the fore and really saved the day was Desley Simpson, the deputy. And I think the mayor wisely deferred to her just simply because she was much more comfortable with media, much more comfortable in terms of being in, in that sort of media spotlight, which is not his strength but so not always. Again, one of the things that we will often say to clients, be prepared for when the boss is away. Mm. And Fonterra is a good case of that. You know, Sparing, when he was CEO during one of the many crises that Fonterra had and that span of years and sort of around 2014 to 2018, he was en route to China and deferred things to the MD of Anchor from recollection, which also went horribly wrong. Mm. Ideally, I think in most cases, as we've seen from our experience, it normally is the CEO or the MD, Mm. but it's not a blanket rule.
1: Yeah, and I think it depends on the crisis too. Like, you know, if you've had a workplace incident where someone's died or been horribly injured and your leader just isn't a naturally empathetic person, you know, I think they need to be there and be seen, but you might have you know, a better person to give those Mm. human sort of...
3: We were having this discussion yesterday, Heather, weren't we? Because I agree with that. You don't Mm -hmm. want to put somebody up that is going to do a bad job. Yes. But you also need to demonstrate that you take what's happened seriously. Mm. And that often means putting up the big cheese. Mm.
0: Okay. So if it's not the big cheese, I get it, right? There'll be occasions, maybe rare ones, where the biggest person isn't the best person but the next best person must be senior enough mm. right there has to be a degree of authority with whoever it is at fronts where media public employees accept this voice mm. that face mm. all right mm, absolutely and again it's it's important because
2: you know, that person becomes the face of the crisis and that person has to build trust and credibility very, very quickly. You know, where you have a leader that doesn't instill confidence, that has a massive effect in terms of um, a wider populace or, or customer base because it, people then just become fearful. Mm. And, you know, they think the the person in charge doesn't know what they're doing or can't manage it, then it's like, oh, mm.
0: So, yeah, it's a critical role. Mm -hmm. Right. Two words you mentioned. Um, are going to tip us into the next bit, which is trust and credibility. And in a crisis, you have to maintain those things. So you can talk to trust and credibility, the leaders who are listening in now, what are some tips that we can give them? And you can be in the midst of, and also out the other side of, because there's post-crisis management as well. So trust and credibility, how do you keep it in the midst of it and also out the other side of it?
2: Well, yeah, I think again it's trust is is and you build that by demonstrating to people that that you are authentic, that you are prepared to front up, you've got the courage to do so, you show empathy. There's a bunch of things that people have to demonstrate to earn trust because trust is earned. Mm-hmm. It's also lost quickly too. So, it's actions. You know, it's not just words. It's it's actually being able to people can see Whoever that person is 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 really making an effort to tell us what is going on, giving us the information, but also is um, you know really personally invested in the right outcome, mm. whatever that that might be. And authenticity is not something that you can fake. You know, if you were if any spokesperson is to front an issue and it's it comes out like it's corporate speak mm. um, or it's been rehearsed, then people see or here, right, right through that. And that has to be a continuous thing. And it's, it isn't a one-off. And credibility too, again, you have to demonstrate that or have proof points to show that you're doing what you say that you're going to do. That builds that cred.
1: Yeah, just what Julian was saying there with that action is so important. Because their eyes are going to be on you now. This crisis is happening. It's in the news. It's on social media. I'm like watching, watching, watching. But if you aren't doing anything about it, that's when that trust breaks down really, really quickly. And telling people you're doing something about it. Exactly. Yeah. Don't say, I'm just too busy, you know, Mm. doing here. I can't tell people. Mm. Yeah. No, you need to do both.
3: You need to act, tell, act, tell, act, tell. I think, too, that's that's true for your team internally Mm. as well. You know, they need to be able to have confidence that you got this and that you will lead them through this. Mm. So it's about building trust and credibility with your staff as well. For sure. And and maybe your your stakeholders. I think Heather and I were we're talking about, you know, don't forget your stakeholders and your industry partners because they can be real allies in, in this situation and be advocates for you. So keeping them informed. Yeah. And mm. um you know, maintaining that trust and credibility with them as well.
1: Because, well. I mean, during a crisis after a crisis, you know, that word of mouth is going to go like wildfire through your community. So the best thing is you can have your staff member at the barbecue over the weekend going, man, my company really handled that well. Or, yeah, so you you mm. want to get that going as well.
0: Yeah. The language and the tone of voice, people, you said corporate speak, that's a killer. People hate it anyway. But in a crisis, you want maximum levels of, humanity or appropriate levels of humanity, right, where the person who's up the front, they sound like a real human being that you can relate to. And, mm. yes, and you've mentioned before, thinger, Kate, with one of your incidents that you've been dealing with, the company was actually beginning to do the right things they were doing. It. So that's an action that Julian was talking about. Add a touch of humanity in there as well. Keep it real.
3: Which I think is even more important if you're dealing with something like animal health or human health, something that's a yes. real emotional issue for people or children. Mm. Yeah. I think back to the, the melamine scare an infant formula for babies. I mean, yeah. that's just wow. that's just, mm. you know, the worst of the worst. Mm. Mm. So that humanity and authenticity and you know is just even more important.
2: Mm. And actually allowing yourself to be human, you know, and it's again not an easy thing for some people to do that again in the glare of of lights and cameras, mm. but actually being vulnerable. At times like that, again, is a way of building trust and cred, because people can see that, versus putting up a a mask or showing that you you actually don't care. So you have to show a degree of emotion and empathy. Mm. And again, it's got to be real as opposed mm. to a put-on.
3: Mm. I think that reminded me of a situation where I can't remember the name of the of the man, but he had to make some of his staff redundant. And he went on social media and talked about how hard it was for him. Yes. And so it was all about him yes. and how upset he was to have to do it. And so there was he showed no empathy yeah. for, for the families of the people, all the people who he had made redundant. Yep. And it was, it was a big faux pas.
1: Yeah, yeah. along the same lines, I remember, you, know, you all remember, like when BP had that oil spill, it was probably 20 years ago now in America, and they put the camera on the CEO and they said, you know, how are you feeling? And he was like, I just want my life back.
2: And oh, oh, you
1: know, oh
0: my <laughs> Like, you know, gosh. all
1: this oil, all the, you know, this huge environmental damage, and all he had to say was, I just want my life back, you know. So
2: Poor Tony. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tony Haywood, yeah. And and the horrible thing about that was, um, and BP had handled that, that issue well in terms of they'd done everything by the book. Mm. But the other learning from that is when you've got a spokesperson, particularly when they're in that spotlight for day and week and month and month, mm. you've got to have a way of um, – you know, making sure that person has a break, yeah. Yes. Well Just been, like your staff yeah. have to have yeah. a break. Yep. Mm. So he was so tired by that point, and and he had said a whole bunch of stuff, and that was the last line, that throwaway line. But that became the headline, mm. and he lost his job. Oh yeah, yeah and, can and things went quickly oh, south after that. I think it
3: takes mm. a huge emotional toll. I mean, I think about some of the the issues and crises we've managed heather and depending on the subject matter as well of it, can mm. take a huge emotional toll mm. personally on the people involved. Yeah. And I know you've you know mm. had that experience.
1: Yeah. We you know, worked with a school that apologized for historical abuses a couple years ago. And in order to talk confidently about that subject, any subject, you need to learn about that subject, right? And that's an awful subject to learn about. You know, you need to actually understand what happened here in this organization so that I can speak mm. with confidence about it.
3: And yeah. And not letting that emotion, yeah. as hard as it is, cloud your decision making. Yes. You know, and it was hugely emotional for you, obviously for the, mm. the people involved. But that's adds to the challenge, you mm. know, when, when you're dealing with a situation like that.
1: Yeah. But if you can tap into that and along those lines of authenticity, then that's when, mm. you know, you talked about challenges also being opportunities to show the real heart of the organization, really.
0: So, but let's just bring it down because there's we've already said that many companies are not going to experience a crisis. They're just not. They are all going to experience Really difficult issues. That's just a given. So, are there any principles? If we talk about issues now, and I thought your definition at the start, could you give it to us again, Julian? Because I thought it was great the way the difference between issues, crisis. Mm. So, look, issues.
2: There are any number of issues. You know, they can be employment issues. There can be issues. Obviously, we've touched on product, and many companies, actually, big and small, have a maintained like a register, they'll keep a track on what the issues are that pertain to their business. So it could be anything and everything. It could be to do with a new water pipeline going in on the road next door. Is it going to affect your business? Probably. So it's about understanding how do we actually keep a track on any issue that might affect our business in some way, monitor it, track it, but don't allow it to actually become a, a crisis. Don't don't allow it to become worse. Mm. And again, the Monitoring of of that's essential because it just takes out that element of surprise or because if you're not monitoring, if you're not checking and following a particular issue, then the time it takes to become a lot, lot worse, as we know, is very, very quick.
3: Mm. I think, you know, am I right in saying, Julian, if you've got a register of those issues, then you use that as the basis for your planning Mm. if they raise their ugly heads? Mm. Mm.
2: Yep. Yep, absolutely. And while there's a good proportion of crises that do come out of left field, you know, no one's anticipated them. That's like the black hat stuff that I mentioned earlier. Most crises can, if you track them back, have come from something that people have been aware of. Mm. They've just been sort of bubbling along.
1: Yeah. Because you know, if you have a risk register as a company, then part of that register is saying, and how are we going to mitigate that risk? And that's where I think it's good to have that senior comms person mm-hmm. in that team, in that senior leadership team. So when you're looking at that, because often most people will think operationally, oh well, you know, how to mitigate it. But then, okay, what if this starts to get out? You know, what if customers start to complain about that? What if staff question what we're doing here? What if that's leaking into the environment and causing an, an issue? What do we do then? So, like as a comps team, we would look at those risks and say, okay, let's just put a little bit of a plan together in case the worst case scenario happens. Or even if, you know, not quite the worst case scenario happens, how how would we talk about it? What are our key messages? And and that can evolve over time, you know, as you check in and say, how is that issue going? Oh, okay, well, we'll change that messaging a little bit. In case it breaks tomorrow, we're prepared. That gives the senior leadership team a real confidence as well as like, okay, if it does break tomorrow, at least we've, we've sat here and we've thought about it. You know, we've talked about it. We know what we do. Rather than just saying, oh God, hope that doesn't happen, you know, as the risk goes up and up and up.
0: So, is this, I don't own a business, but if I did, and let's just say I had data, 50 staff, but I've got about 10 key leaders, say, and you three are in the room, and I think, look, we've had issues, we're going to have some more. I just need some really specific, concrete tips. I don't have an issue to give you, but I know they're going to come up and I've got five minutes, I'm busy man, i got 50 staff. (laughs) So what can you give me that can get me and our listeners who are tuning in now concrete things that they can help with the issues that are going to be on their plate in 2024, which is almost on us?
2: The one thing would be having your messaging sorted. So, because fundamentally, again, we're, we're talking about speed. So the ability to front your stakeholders media otherwise knowing what to say and and some people surprisingly don't know what to say in that situation they don't even know how to describe their their business in one sentence if they had to so even at that basic level of preparation without even knowing specifically what a particular issue was having a a way where you would know how to respond and what to say so having a form of like a message house And then, you know, at least being able to also have some means of also knowing who to talk to because that's the other thing. We know so often when a crisis will happen, um, CEOs, leaders will go, who do I call first? Is it our biggest shareholder? Is it the board? Mm. Or do we tell employees first? Mm. It's also knowing those things because you don't have the time to to deliberate or to think that through. You've got to pick that phone up and work through an agreed process. Mm. Again, speed, because if you dilly-dally, and you go into a huddle and try and work it out, Mm. you know, You've, you've missed that first golden hour opportunity mm. and then you are behind the eight ball. Mm.
1: And I think like working, you know, when you've got that issue in front of you and you're thinking through it, how to mitigate it and that sort of thing, and then you start to think about the communications, often when you're working with your with your comms team, you've probably seen this, Julian, too. It's like as you as the comms person starts asking your questions because they want to start to write maybe a holding statement or your key messages or whatever, often questions will come out of that process where, you, where the leader will think, oh gosh, we haven't thought that through. I guess operationally, now we have to go back and think how would we, you know, work through that process so we have an answer to that question because the public will ask it eventually or our board will ask it or whatever. So I think, you know, working through that
3: process Mm. often uncovers things that you didn't think about.
0: Kate, got any tips for me? Free ones?
3: Well, (laughs) have a plan. Please have a plan. It's expensive to do. It takes time. You need the right expertise. But start with a an operational plan for how your business would respond and then get a great comms team. I'm not just pushing the HMC barrow here, because there's lots of us <laughs> yes. that do this well. You know, get a great comms plan in place to support what you are going to do mm. or what falls out of that operational plan.
2: And just to add to that, actually, and what Heather said, ideally uh what you want to do is as part of building a great plan is to have that workshop. So mm. so it is about saying, okay, let's Let's sit down around a table and have a couple of hours and actually work through all the things on your radar, what those things are, what the company's doing, um, because you you actually need to understand all those things to to build that plan. Mm. It's not just about us as comms people going away and doing our thing, you know, and Mm. like in a vacuum. It's very much the plan has to be aligned to the business's objectives. It's got to reflect everything that that business is and does. Otherwise, Mm. again, the plan, the plan. And it's values too, right? Absolutely. The way it
3: behaves. Mm. Yeah,
2: yeah. It's voice, Mm. it's personality.
3: Yeah.
0: All right. So the crisis has happened. My team have done something's right. We've done something's wrong and we've managed to get through it. We've survived. But we're on the other side of the crisis. Now what? Do we just get on with our lives or are there some best practices when it comes to post-crisis?
2: sometimes you don't have a choice. So thinking of Fonterra's crisis with the Tapu plant, the melamine issue, and or the contamination issue, rather, that was one where the government said, okay, well, this has been of such a significant nature. It's affected our economy. It's affected our currency. Our dollar went down. It's affected the trust that our key markets like China have in us as an economy. We need to have a commission of, of inquiry to actually look at how this happened, why did some of the things go wrong, and um, how do we ensure that that doesn't happen again? So that involved an external review, so both the government working and its agencies working with Fonterra. And in that case too, you know, it became, I think, part of the inquiry's recommendations was have a plan. They didn't actually have a proper plan. They didn't Mm. have a plan that was tested. (laughs) All these things sort of came out in the wash, but it's only by having – Those intense, deep dives into the things that went well and didn't that that you can improve and prepare for the next time.
1: Mm. I think that the thing that comes to mind for me as well is, you know, if you go through a crisis that's particularly pretty public, eyes are going to be on you now. You know, the the eyes of the public are going to be on you. The media is going to be looking for anything to bring you back into the media spotlight again, So I think you need to act and do the right thing. But I guess look for opportunities to build that trust bank again. You know, look for... Things that are authentically happening throughout your business that we can talk about that are demonstrating that we are a good corporate citizen, that we're doing the right thing. Mm. Um, so, we're so sort of that positive, getting that positive news out there um, and being a little bit more purposeful maybe than you were before in doing that. Okay. I think
3: there's probably a balance there to strike because you don't want to overdo it. No.
1: And look yeah. like you're
0: overcompensating. Yes. Like, what are they trying to hide here? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
1: yeah. True.
3: So, just subtly, mm, perhaps. Yeah. Yes
0: is there also a bringing together of a couple of things. You're going to do a review. How do we do? What did we do well? Uh, there's clearly some things we did wrong. If the public, are, they saw it all go, some things go pear-shaped. You do a review, you make some changes. Do you then take these changes that we're going to make and let the public know Ideally, yes. Okay, because that's, it's one thing to, actually, it's a great thing to review and make some changes, but do you want to let the world know, actually, we could have done better and this is what we're going to do next time should it happen? Mm, I think so. Yes, Mm. yes,
2: absolutely, because, again, that's a way of rebuilding trust and and that process of uh, rebuilding trust can take a long, long time Mm. for companies that that sell food or anything like that. They have to, you know, it takes a long time to get those customers back.
3: Mm. Um. I'm still not buying blueberries. Oh. <laughs> oh, geez, what's the what's the
0: issue? Yeah, <laughs> <you got> <laughs> I'll talk to you out.
1: <laughs> I think you know what a great opportunity too. Like afterwards, to really work with your internal team to say, "Hey, staff, you know, we need input to be better next time." Yeah. You know, like um and actually involve them in in the aftermath or yeah, in plans going forward.
0: All right, team. Well. This has been a great discussion, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. What we typically do to end off or round off a crunch is I give you a, uh, because crunch is all about um, crucial chats over lunch, I've got a foodie question. Today's one, I'm gonna link the two things together. So in the midst of a meltdown, what is your, what's your comfort food? What are you going for, right? So, okay, I'll I'll crowbar it in and say, the crisis is happening or the crisis is happening over lunch, what is your food that makes you feel just a little bit better. <laughs> Peanut butter on toast. Yeah. Oh my god. On on, yes. vi- on viral. That's viral. <laughs> yeah. never wrong.
2: That's thank a, you, Julian. Yeah. But yeah. how long
3: do you toast it, Julian?
2: Mm, I it has to be a little bit burnt around the edges. Oh, mm. no. oh That's a bit so of carbon in there, adds to the flavour. <laughs> crunchy, oh. no salt. Oh
3: thank God. <laughs> <laughs> and no butter?
2: No butter. No yeah, butter. No. What? Okay, no, I've got this
3: What? <laughs> oh no, I have butter. Oh, you do! I'm a dairy farmer's daughter. Oh, okay. I'm a dairy farmer's daughter. Butter you don't have butter any all butter. Away.
0: No. It's just peanut butter on t- on burnt toast. Yeah, and
3: mine's got to be salted peanut
0: butter. <laughs> oh my <laughs> gosh! Are you two are never going to have a crisis <laughs> no, together. You sorry. have to go into separate rooms. <laughs> <laughs> all right, but hey, I'm liking the toast. You're right. There's something about toast which is just feels great all the time. The smell and the Yeah, piece, the smell. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Heather, have you got to come for food? Pepperoni pizza. <laughs>
1: Your if I'm stressed, is, I yes. need my pizza. Spoken like a true American.
3: <laughs>
0: yeah, <that's right. laughs> no, i No, I'm with you on that. Pizza yeah. is, it just feels like great food all the time, yeah. right? it's like happy food. Yeah, 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 yeah. Lots of it.
3: Mine would have to be chocolate, yeah. but only Widdick is. Okay. Mm.
0: Dark. Like,
3: and if I'm allowed to say, not just food, but it's to be a good gin, a stiff <laughs> gin. <laughs> on yes. side. Oh, you can You're have, you can have.
0: It's cru- it's crunch. There's no judgment here. If you want to have a gin at your I mean, lunch, as
3: long as it's five o'clock somewhere in the world, that's <laughs> what they say, right? That's
0: correct. All right. Uh, okay. Well, it's been a pleasure, Julian, having you here. Really, just you seem like such a great guy. I like you. Um. But anyway, it was you, just mate. great having you on board, and I think you've got such valuable things. If I've learned nothing else, if I was a company where crisis is the sort of thing that's gonna go public, you get the experts in before you need them. Correct. And one of those. Yep. Heather, it's always a pleasure. Kate, you as well. All right.
3: Thanks, Mike.
0: Thank you. All right, to everyone listening in, that's all we have time for in the latest episode of Crunch. Hope you enjoyed, stay tuned, and we'll bring you another episode of PR and marketing soon. Have good days. Thanks for joining us for the Crunch Podcast, brought to you by New Zealand PR agency, HMC. Make sure you hit the subscribe button so you don't miss our next episode. See you next time.